Thank you, Dan, for reading that long passage and one that's familiar to most of us. And uh, today we're going to talk about the glory of God revealed in our stewardship. Maybe that's why we have such a light crowd today. No, there's, there's people traveling on vacation, and I know we have some of our uh, congregation who are battling illness, so we need to pray for them. So let's pray to the Lord, and then we'll get started. God of glory, we humbly come before you as people saved from our sins and transgressions through the blood of the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, and his vicarious death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, which is the glorious gospel. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for bringing us from death to life, adopting us into your eternal family, and giving us true meaning, purpose, and hope, regardless of our circumstances. By faith, may we who are called by your great name, little Christs, glorify you today through our praise, our prayers, and the proclamation of God's word. Glorious God, we ask that you meet the physical, emotional, mental, relational, and spiritual needs of the body of Christ at Crabapple First Baptist Church and our sister churches in this area. As you answer our prayers according to your sovereign will, may we tell others about our great God who hears and acts for our good and to the praise of your glory. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word to John 4 and make the connection in Genesis 33, 48, 50, and Joshua 24, may, we help, may you help us understand the importance, significance, and practical implications of being stewards of all the resources that you've entrusted to us as your children. As your messenger today, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're in the seventh part of a nine-part series on the glory of God revealed. And just to review that, uh, the first three weeks Luke Folsom preached on the glory of God revealed first from Eden to New Jerusalem. The following week he preached on the glory of God revealed among the nations. Then he preached on the glory of God revealed in his attributes. And then Mike Wells brought us a message on the glory of God revealed in the family. I brought a message on the glory of God revealed in our work or our vocation. And then last week, Nathan Young, the pastor at uh, Grace Alpharetta, brought us the glory of God revealed in our relationships. And then today we're going to talk about the glory of God revealed in our stewardship. So just a review. For those who may not have heard my four-part series back in 2019 on generous living, I offered a holistic approach of biblical stewardship, which broadly covered four specific areas of the Christian life and our discipleship journey. The first message was on stewarding, God, uh, stewarding one's personhood, the fact that God has uniquely made you and blessed you and me. Secondly, stewarding one's redemption. God has particularly uh, personally called you and called me 
to be his child, to be part of his family. Thirdly, stewarding one's gifting. God has particularly equipped each and every one of us for works of service. And finally, stewarding one's wealth. God blesses us to be a blessing to others. So biblical stewardship teaches that you are uniquely made by God in His image, the Imago Dei. You're personally called by God into His spiritual family. That's called election. You have been equipped by God for good works. We are God's workmanship or masterpiece. Think of yourself as God's masterpiece. And God blesses you and me financially so that we can be a blessing to others, and that's called stewardship. Therefore, each one of us who follow the Lord are stewards or managers of all of God's blessings, and we're accountable to God for how we steward or manage each of those resources that God has entrusted to us. In Matthew 5.21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then listen to this. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. John Piper writes in his article, Will God really praise us? Faithfulness in this life is acknowledged by the Lord of heaven and commended. The essence of Christian virtue is our joyful treasuring of God himself in all that we do, so that God's admiration of our sanctification and glorification is, in fact, ultimately the admiration of his own merciful workmanship. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So today I would like for us to look at a familiar story in the New Testament about Jesus' encounter with the woman from Samaria or the Samaritan woman. And then I would like for us to go back to the Old Testament and trace the seemingly insignificant gift of land and a well in Genesis 33. So if you'll turn to John chapter 4, the the passage that uh, Dan read for us. Um, I want to point out four things in this passage, and then we'll go into more detail about these four different points that I want to make. The first point is that Jesus' stewardship of time and location is intentional. Verses 1 through 6 and verse 12. Jesus' stewardship of time and location is intentional. Secondly, Jesus' stewardship of people is strategic, verses 7 through 15. Thirdly, Jesus' stewardship of the gospel is preeminent. That means it's of first importance, verses 13 and 14, and then verses 16 through 26. And then finally, Jesus' stewardship of relationships transforms people and communities, verses 27a and then through 42. So let me just give you a synopsis or a summary of that passage that, that Dan read in John chapter 4. So Jesus and his disciples, they travel from Judea, probably Jerusalem, to Galilee. 
but they take a non-traditional route through Samaria. You see, typically they would avoid Jewish, religious Jews would avoid Samaria because they didn't want to be exposed to the Samaritans. And so they would typically go along the east, the, uh, the west of the Jordan River and make their way up to Galilee, which was, which was a much longer route. Although it was, more, it was a more direct route, they had to pass through a land that was approximately 40 miles long, north to south, and about 35 miles wide from east to west. As you know, previously it was part of the northern kingdom of Israel, but it was conquered and destroyed by Sargon of Assyria in 721 B.C., and this was a result of the northern kingdom's apostasy or turning away from Yahweh. As a result of the Assyrians' resettlement policy of their conquered enemies, the Jews intermarried with pagan nations who were imported into Samaria by the Assyrians. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds, and they were despised by the Jews. They only recognized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Torah, as conical, and they worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. No self-respecting Jew would interact with a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman who was a known adulteress. The physical location of the story is Jacob's well, which was near the town of Sychar, near the field that Jacob had purchased or had given to his son Joseph, that we read about in John 4, 6. In verse 10, Jesus answers the woman and says, If you knew the gift of God... And then he describes living water or spiritual water. So Jesus, who begins by asking for physical water from the well to quench his thirst, now transitions this water metaphor to spiritual water that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. At the end of this story, we see not only is a Samaritan woman brought from death to life, but through her testimony, the whole village encounters Jesus and many Samaritans from that town believed in him. In fact, the last line says in verse 42, they acknowledge Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now, if you go back to John chapter 3, isn't it interesting that the encounter that Jesus has is with a religious Jew, Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. And now in the next chapter, John gives us a completely different picture of an encounter with a Samaritan woman who is not only despised by the Jews, but she is considered an adulteress. She is an adulteress. And no self-respecting Jew would have contact with a Samaritan, much less an adulterous woman. So, if you'd like to take notes, I have five questions I'd like to ask, and I'd like to see if we can answer these five questions. The first question is, so what does this story in John 4 have to do with stewardship? How many of you have heard a message from John chapter 4 on stewardship? Raise your hands. I don't see any. So what does it have to do with stewardship? Number two, what is the significance of Jacob's well? Number three, what are the implications for us as Christ followers today? Number four, what is the practical application for Christians here in the 21st century in the area that we live in? 
And then finally, number five, what changes are you and I going to make in our stewardship this week? That'll be the challenge. So if you don't want to be challenged, you might want to leave before I get to the fifth question. Question number one, so what does this story in John 4 have to do with our stewardship? Let's take a look at the text. First, Jesus' stewardship of time and location is intentional. Jesus chooses to move from Judea to Samaria, a more direct route, a route not normally taken by religious Jews, for a purpose. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus goes immediately from Judea to Samaria. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't waste time. He tells his disciples, we're going, and we're going through Samaria. Secondly, Jesus travels to Sychar, and he stops specifically at a strategic place, and that is Jacob's well. You see that in verses 5 and 6. Then Jesus sends his disciples away. This is alluded to in the text. They go away to buy food because they're concerned about their own stomachs and about Jesus being fed. We see that in verse 8. And then finally, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. It wasn't a chance encounter. It was a sovereign act of God. And Jesus was always obedient to the Father. He was led by the Holy Spirit, and he meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We see that in verse 7. So how long does it take to get from Jerusalem, if Jesus was in Jerusalem, how long does it take to get from Jerusalem to Sychar or to Shechem? Well, I did a little research. Uh, as you walk, it's about 40 miles. So in Jesus' time, that would have been about a two- to three-day journey. Now, if Jesus had continued on up to Galilee, depending upon what part of Galilee he was traveling to, that would be an additional uh, 25 to 30 miles, and that might take one to two days. So about halfway on his journey, they stop in uh, Sychar, Shechem, and they stop at Jacob's well. Secondly, Jesus' stewardship of people is strategic. How many of you think about your relationships with others as being strategic? I know someone in this audience that does, and that's my wife, Wanda. She's very intentional about the relationships that she has with people. So in this passage, Jesus' stewardship of people is strategic. Jesus treats the Samaritan woman with dignity and respect. Throughout the text, you never see where Jesus condemns her. You never see where Jesus puts her down. Jesus meets her right where she is in her life and in her sin, and he treats her with dignity and respect. Now, let me ask you a question. This is another question. What is our culture doing today? Are they treating people with dignity and respect, regardless of what their uh, place in life is? No. No, we're accusatory. We're, we're judgmental. But what about if we just met people where they are and then built a relationship with them and then hopefully they might see Christ in us and then we would have an opportunity not to live out the gospel in front of them but perhaps even explain the gospel to them and how God would love for them to have a relationship with him. Jesus makes a simple request. He doesn't ask for much. He says, give me a drink. 
He's thirsty. She's coming to draw water. She's coming in the middle of the day because probably she, uh, because she's being ostracized perhaps in her village, she goes away by herself. She goes to the well to get water and she goes away from the people in her village. So he makes a simple request. He says, give me a drink. I mentioned that Jesus meets her right where she is in her life and even in her religious condition. We see that in verses 7 through 15. And then in verse 10, Jesus offers her something that she does not expect. He offers her living water, verse 10. Thirdly, Jesus' stewardship of the gospel is preeminent. That means that it is of first importance. Is the stewardship of the gospel preeminent in your life? Is the stewardship of the gospel preeminent in my life? That's a challenging question. Jesus offers her water that leads to eternal life, verse 13. Jesus confronts her sin of adultery and broken relationships in verses 16 and 17. He still treats her with dignity and respect, but he does confront her in her sin and in the relationships that she's had in the past and the relationship that she's in presently with someone who is not her husband. Jesus clarifies for her, true worship is not about a place. She says, we worship at Mount Gerizim, where first uh, Jacob built an an altar to the Lord when he entered into the promised land from his uncle Laban's territory, east of the promised land uh, of Canaan. And he points her to a person, of course, He is that person, but he uses a very interesting term. He says, Father. He uses a very intimate term. Now, just think about it. If you are a Jew or you're a Samaritan who follows the Pentateuch, you think about the person of God as one who is almost unapproachable, and you can't even say his name. And yet, here is Jesus who says and calls this God Yahweh Father. Intimate, personal, deep relationship. And then, Jesus confirms that He is the Messiah. I am He, He says. She is face to face with the promised one. The Christ, the anointed one. I am He, he says. By saying that, he's he's saying that he is God. That I am God. That I am face to face with you, woman. He says that in in a positive way. And he says, I am the promised one. Then finally, Jesus' stewardship of relationships transforms people's people, and it also transforms communities. Because after this, the woman leaves the well, and she goes and tells the people in her village, verses 28 and 29. Then she actually leads the people from the village back to the well to meet Jesus. So not only does she go back and tell, she says, come with me, let me introduce you to the one who I believe is the Christ. And then Jesus and his disciples 
don't end that encounter right there. They're invited into the village, and they stay with them for two days. So they're living among the people that the Jews despise. They're living among sinners. How many of you live among sinners? Like me, you probably say, well, I am the chief sinner, so I live with myself constantly. But praise God that we have been made righteous through the blood of Christ. So they lodge among the the people that the Jews despise, and they build relationships with them, and they enter into their community, which is completely different than the Jewish context. And it says at the very end that many Samaritans believed and they confessed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Stewardship of time and location, stewardship of people is strategic, stewardship of the gospel is preeminent, and stewardship of relationships transforms people and it can transform communities. We can be an agent of Christ to transform people in our community and transform our community, people and communities. Only God can do that, but we can participate with God in the way that He is working among the people that we interact with and the community in which we live in. Isn't that the purpose of the church? Question number two. What is the significance of Jacob's well? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 33, if you want to turn in your Bibles. And we'll just read um, a few verses here. Genesis chapter 33, verses 18 through 20. And this is when Jacob has encountered his brother Esau, whom he deceived as a young man. He stole his blessing from his father Abraham, I'm sorry, Isaac. And it says, and Jacob came safely. The reason he came safely to the city of Shechem is because God promised him safe entry into the promised land, that he would be coming back to that land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, And that is the place in which Laban lived, his uncle. And he camped before the city. In other words, he pitched his tent with all of his family and the livestock. Verse 19, And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And what did he do next? He erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, the God who is is the God of Israel. So he purchases this land. It's the place that he's going to settle with his family. And God is going to bless that place for generations to come. Now, Shechem was only about a a mile at the most from Sychar, the location of Jacob's well. And Jacob's well still exists today. It's still a natural flowing well, although it doesn't look anything like it did in Jesus' day, that well is over 4,000 years old. 
4,000 years old. At the time that Jesus encountered the woman in Sychar, it was 2,000 years old. And like many things in Israel, most things that are considered to be holy, they've erected a church over Jacob's well. It's an Eastern Orthodox church, and you have to go down in the bottom of the church to a crypt or to a cave, and right there is Jacob's well. And I watched a video this week where the man who oversaw the well took someone down, a camera crew downstairs, and um, they drew water up from the well. They gave him water to drink. He drank it. It tasted good. And then he says, you want to see how long it takes for the water to get to the bottom? And they estimate today that it's probably about 75 feet deep. Perhaps it was as much as 150 feet deep in Jesus' day. Jacob's well still exists. Secondly, Jacob, or now Israel, blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So we fast forward, and um, uh, Jacob has now learned that his son Joseph is not dead. He hasn't been killed, as his sons had told him, his other sons had told him. He hadn't been killed by a wild animal. But he had been living in Egypt. In fact, he is second in command of all of Egypt. And so God uses Joseph to save his family and to save his father and to continue on the promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. In verse 19, chapter 48, in Genesis 48, 19 and 22, it says this, Nevertheless, his, meaning um, his younger brother, Ephraim, shall, this is Jacob blessing his two grandsons, the sons of Joseph. He says, Nevertheless, his younger brother, Ephraim, shall be greater than Manasseh, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations, continuing the promise that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, a blessing shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you, Israel, or Jacob, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim, the younger, before Manasseh. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers from Egypt. Moreover, I have given you, rather than to your brothers, a mountain slope, Mount Gerizim, that I took from the land of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons, continuing that blessing. But isn't it interesting, this is the fourth time that the father, the patriarch, has blessed the younger as opposed to the older, which is the Jewish tradition and law. So let's look first. We see that um, Abraham puts Isaac over Ishmael. Then we see that Jacob, uh, that um, um, Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, right? (laughs) And now we have Jacob over Esau. And then we have Joseph the second to the youngest over Reuben, the oldest. And then here we see Ephraim, the younger, over Manasseh. 
And then we see in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, that many years later, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, in verse 22 it says, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. Genesis 33, 19. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. I don't know if you're following me. I don't know if I'm being very clear, but what I want you to see is this. Here's Jesus meeting with this woman at the well, Jacob's well. This is land that Jacob purchased for a hundred pieces of money when he came back into the promised land to establish the inheritance. He has passed this land on from generation to generation. They have built a well there for their own water supply and for those of the livestock and the community. And 2,000 years later, this well still exists, and Jesus strategically takes his disciples through Samaria to Sychar, to Jacob's well, to take the gospel from the Jews, now to the half-breeds, the Samaritans. And then we see later on in Acts chapter 10 that Peter goes, a Jew, an apostle, a disciple, he goes all the way up to Caesarea from Joppa, and he takes the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, which is, by the way, us, right? Unless we have some Jewish people here. So this land, this gift of inheritance, that Jacob had no idea how it was going to bless people has been a blessing to the Samaritans. So, so what? So what? What does that have to do with my stewardship? Well, we'll get to that. Number three, what are the implications of this passage? In other words, what do we want you to know? Here are four things to consider. How you steward your money, your possessions, your land today can have a positive or negative outcome for the future. Number two, stewardship is about managing God's resources. Stewardship is about managing God's resources that he has entrusted to you. The amount of your possessions is secondary to the manner in which you steward them. I often hear people say, well, I don't have very much. Well, you're still responsible for what God has given you. Or I have a great deal. <laughs> you're still responsible for what God has given you. I, I have something in between. It doesn't matter. You're still responsible for what God has entrusted to you. Three. It does not matter whether God has entrusted a little or a lot to you. Ultimately, you and I will be accountable to God for what He has entrusted to us. It is our responsibility to steward the wealth that God has given us. And when I say wealth, I'm not talking about millions of dollars. I'm talking about whatever God has given you. You and I will be accountable on judgment day before God. It doesn't affect your salvation. What it affects is your rewards in heaven. 
And those are eternal. And the rewards that you enjoy here are not, don't last very long because they're temporal. Okay, so what are the truths that we should draw out of this passage? What are the principles by which we as believers should live? Number one, God uses all things, those things seemingly insignificant, and those things that are significant to fulfill His purposes. To fulfill His purposes. Number two, Jacob's well, which was passed along as an inheritance to his family throughout the generations, hosted a significant encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. I want you to think about this question. First of all, for those of you who have children, do you believe it is your responsibility to give your inheritance equally to each of your children? Grandparents, do you think it's your responsibility to give to your grandchildren equally what you have? And the answer is no. The answer is no. What, what did I say? The, the answer is no. You're not responsible for giving to your children or grandchildren an equal amount. What you are responsible for is discerning whether or not they are responsible enough to manage, and, uh, to manage and store the resources that you're going to entrust to them, and particularly if they're followers of Jesus. You say, well, all my kids are believers. That's awesome. But what if one goes astray before you die? Do they still get an equal share? And I would say, I would submit to you, no, they don't get an equal share. You're not giving them your possessions. You're giving them what God has entrusted to you to entrust to them, to entrust to someone else. These are God's resources. I lost my place. I started preaching and I lost my place. But I hope I made my point. Thirdly, truths, principles. The gospel moved from the Jews to the Samaritans and affected a group of people in their entire community. People that ordinarily would never have been reached by the common Jew because they despised them. They hated them. They looked down at them. Fourth, the gospel was birthed by a divine encounter at Jacob's well, an inheritance passed on from generation to generation. Hearts were transformed, and disciples emerged from an unreached people group, the Samaritans. Yes, they were unreached. They did not have the gospel until Jesus and his disciples encountered them. Okay, the fifth question. We're almost done. Application. So, what do you want me to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this that you've given me today? That God has given you today? One, I want you to listen very carefully. This may be repetitive to some of you, and it may be the first time you've ever heard this. Number one, agree that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Agree that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Number two, once you've come to that agreement, agree that God owns everything. 
Even the very breath that you're drawing right now is a gift from God. God owns the oxygen that we're breathing. Agree that God owns it all. Number three, accept, I know this is going to rub some shoulders the wrong way, accept personal responsibility for your stewardship of God's resources. Accept personal responsibility for the stewardship of God's resources. Four, this is going to take some work. Develop a personal spending plan. I didn't say a budget. Develop a personal spending plan to spend wisely. Save prudently and give generously. Spend wisely, save prudently, and give generously. Five, the credit card companies and the credit companies are going to hate me for this one. Manage debt. Manage debt proactively. If you're in debt, get out of debt. If you have too much debt, reduce your debt. Avoid debt. It's practical. It'll save you a lot of headache, a lot of sleepless nights. Five, live generously. Live generously and give the first fruits of your labor to the great commandment, love God and love others, and the great commission, make, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's where your resources need to go after you've met your basic needs. Go and make disciples. Now I wrote on this last page, this is the last page. Land the plane. Land the plane. It's time for the passengers to get to the terminal and get off the plane. So listen carefully. Here's today's challenge. Here is today's challenge. Give generously. How do I do that? Well, you've got to do the other things first. But that doesn't preclude you from giving generously in the process. One, I, I want to just mention a disclaimer. As a pastor and elder of this church, I have no idea what you give to the church. I have no clue. You may give nothing. You may give a dollar a week. You may give a million dollars over the course of your lifetime. I have no idea. It's none of my business. One, if you're not giving to your local church, I challenge you by faith to start this week. This doesn't apply just to parents and grandparents. It applies to students. It applies to children. If you're not giving to your local church, I challenge you by faith to start this week. Don't let next week bypass without starting this week. Systematic giving is the best and easiest way to get started. If you can only afford, currently, a dollar a week, give a dollar a week. And do it every week. Do it systematically. If you can afford $10 a week, or $100 a week, or $1,000 a week, do it now and do it every single week. Do it systematically. Number three, if you're a member of Crabapple First Baptist Church, if you benefit from the ministry of this church, then here's your third challenge. You can give to the mission and ministry of Crabapple First Baptist Church by using our secure online giving site, 
crabapplefbc.org forward slash give online or if you have Shelby Next app downloaded to your phone or your, your iPad, you can do that. Right there on the front page at the bottom, it says give. You can do that. It's real easy. Or you can be more traditional. You can write a check every week. You can set up direct deposit out of your checking account every week. You can bring cash if you prefer to do that. Bitcoin, not into it yet, but Bitcoin's growing. Fourth, now this is where my 42 years and eight months of vocational full-time work come in. And that, that ended on Friday, July the 9th. 42 years and eight months, full-time employment, continuously by God's grace, but that doesn't even include when I started working at seven, cutting grass in my neighborhood. The last 22 years of my vocational full-time work, I help people with biblical stewardship. I help people learn the principles of biblical stewardship and then help them think about ways that they could be most efficient in maximizing God's resources for their own needs and for the needs of the kingdom of God. That's what I did. That's what God called me to do. And I don't have it perfected, but I have a wife that keeps me accountable. So if you would like to explore, if you have more resources than normal, and you'd like to explore more tax-efficient ways to give, I'll be glad to sit down with you in a confidential setting and just listen to your story and answer your questions and, and help you discover the tools that are in the toolbox to give efficiently and effectively for the kingdom of God. The last gift that I was able to, to um, help facilitate at my previous employer was a couple whose two children benefited from one of our ministries. A son who is now in his late 20s and a daughter who's now in our master's program down in Pine Mountain. And I had several phone conversations and email exchanges with them. And then I went up to their little cabin that they were renting outside of Ella Jay as the rodents were running across the top rafters on the front porch in a shaded area because they're, they bought 103 acres of land and they are building a home there. And I helped them facilitate a gift of $100,000. Now, let me say this. Unfortunately, I was able to meet this couple before they did something that could have saved them about 25% in taxes. See, if, they had, if I had known about this opportunity and I could have met with them, I could have talked with them about something called sell a business interest because the gentleman owned with another gentleman a company and that company had been very successful and they had sold the company to four of their employees and part of the arrangement was that he would continue to work in uh, diminished role and time over the next three years to coach them and disciple them through this business transaction. 
he sold his part of the company. And from the sale of that company, he gave a gift of $100,000. Now, if I had known this prior to that, because we talked about it, I could have helped him structure that situation so that the sale of the company, a portion of that was a gift. And by making it a gift, it com almost completely eliminated um, capital gains tax. So a $100,000 gift could have been a $125,000 gift because he didn't have to spend $25,000 and give it to Uncle Sam. I say all that to say there are many ways that you can be a good steward of God's resources. There are many tools in the toolbox that are very legitimate and legal. And if you have questions about how you can maximize God's resources, I'll be glad to have a conversation with you and help you the best I can. If you're not giving, give to your local church. Start this week. The best way to give is to give systematically. It's easy to give here at Crab Apple. We make it easy to support the ministry and mission of the church. And if you have questions about how to be more efficient with God's resources, I'll be glad to help you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who is the greatest giver through the atoning sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving every true Christian who has been transformed by the gospel the gift of the Holy Spirit. Help us to trust you in every area of our lives, including our finances. Help us to be a generous people for our good and to the praise of your glory, both here in our community and around the world. As you sanctify us in our stewardship, may we receive joy in the generous giving journey, and may we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.